loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Bill Hayes. Bill's Bill's the author of The Anatomist, Five Quartz, and Sleep Demons. He's also the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in Nonfiction and was a visiting scholar at the American Academy in Rome. He's a frequent contributor to the New York Times, and his writing has appeared in the New York Review of Books and Salon, among other publications. His photographs have been featured in Vanity Fair, the New York Times, and The New Yorker. He lives in New York, and you can visit his website at BillHayes.com. Welcome, Bill. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to have you, and just to say the obvious up front, your your book is so beautiful and just touched me so deeply. It's been lingering with me, uh, you know, coming to my mind every day as I as I uh, prepared for today. So thank you. Well, th- well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to hear that. Um, the book has had an amazing response. Uh, it's been out about three months now, and uh, yeah, it's been surprising and and delightful to hear from people all around the world. And and um, maybe I have a, a slightly different experience of the book, um, having lost a partner and then loved again. Um, mm-hmm. And so I I felt Steve, um, your long long standing um, partner, so. Uh, behind the book the whole way and so I thought let's start by talking with him and that relationship in your life and you know that's sort of I guess for the book a jumping off point but it, I was so aware of him the whole way through yeah I'm glad to hear you say that I think that is true um, in a certain way Steve triggered the whole experience which the book is about Steve was a long-term partner. We were together 17 years living in San Francisco. And uh, Steve was a couple years younger than me. And uh, he died unexpectedly and suddenly at age 43 of a heart attack. He died in bed next to me. And Steve did have HIV AIDS, um, but was in good health um, thanks to the protease inhibitor drugs and um, had no history of heart problems. So the the heart attack was very unexpected and sudden. Mm. And uh, though I tried to save him, tried CPR and EMTs came and we happened to live close to a hospital. So they did get him to a hospital, but he was gone by the time that we reached the ER. So the night before he died was as ordinary as a night could be for a couple, you know, making dinner, cleaning up, talking, reading in bed, saying goodnight. And then the next morning I woke to him uh, in cardiac arrest and then he was gone and there was no goodbye. Um, It was a devastating loss. 
and staggering. I was uh, 45 at the time he was 43. Mm. And it took me a few years um, to get regrounded, but eventually I decided I really, really had to start fresh, start my life over. And that precipitated my moving to New York City, which becomes the subject of Insomniac City, my book. You know, this the whole theme of this show is these kind of radical things that end up happening in our lives mm-hmm. after something mm-hmm. big like that. And for me, it was interesting that you made such a radical geographic move. I still live in the mm-hmm. house I lived in with mm-hmm. with my first mm-hmm. wife. I live mm-hmm. in that house with my second wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, it, the the content is such a contrast, but that sense of just a radical shift in life was so familiar. Details different, yeah. Um, yeah. but that radical shift so familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way in which that perhaps, I, I don't want to assume, but it almost felt like it... Um, made you less hesitant to do something mm-hmm. so radical, perhaps. Do you think that's yeah, true? Yeah, I mean, I think of that as it was the end of one life and the beginning of another life. And in fact, I, I'd always loved tattoos, but never had one. And about six months after Steve died, I did get a tattoo, had it put on a pulse point. And um, it's a kind of abstract design, but it is the date of his death, 10-10, October 10th. Because it did mark, as I said, the end of one life and the beginning of another. Now, when you lose someone like that, whether it's a husband or a wife or a partner or, I suppose, a child, I've never had children, but, a, you know, a very shattering loss, um, your whole life changes. You know? <laughs> and yes. it isn't what you want. It isn't what you want. It isn't what you planned. It maybe isn't what you expected. Um, and you can't have your former life back. Um, but it is also the beginning of a new life, and one can make certain choices about how to move forward. So um, that is also something I've tried to embrace and, and write about, um, that with that kind of devastating loss comes an opportunity to, to live a different life, um, whatever that may mm. mean. And was it kind of a uh, a visceral choice to go? Th- mm-hmm. I feel as if San Francisco and New York have some kind of connection, right? <laughs> a lot of people go one way, a lot of people go the other way. Yeah, but how met, how was it lot, New York? I met a lot of New Yorkers who would say, "You move this direction because New Yorkers want to move <laughs> west." You know, um, well, a couple things. Um, I had lived my whole life on the West Coast. I grew up in Washington State, small town or smallish town, Spokane, and uh, I'd gone to college in California and then lived in San Francisco for 25 years. And yet I had always loved New York City. Um, even as a young boy, my parents took me and one of my five sisters to New York, and I was absolutely dazzled. It was the complete opposite of our life in Spokane, Washington. And I kind of um, had this romantic vision of New York City. Then becoming a writer, you know, I published three books before Insomniac City. Uh, I had an agent and an editor here, so I would visit occasionally. And I always, I always loved it. So after Steve's death, um, 
you know, it wasn't my immediate impulse to move. Um, it took me a long time to come to that decision. But I did eventually just begin to feel like I, my life is just not moving forward here. I'm sort of stuck in the sadness of that loss, and I need to start fresh. So, um, but once I decided, yeah, it was pretty spontaneous. I pretty quickly made the decision and took a trip back to New York, found an apartment. I had to get a full-time job, and um, I bought a one-way ticket, and I did know a few people, um, my agent, my editor, and I had met Oliver Sacks but only a few other people. So it was, um, it was a kind of leap. And uh, I think of New York City as kind of saving my life because the city itself allowed me to start a new life. And, um, and the book is very much about that, about reinventing yourself. For me, it was at age 48, which is a little bit older than, than uh, maybe most people moving to New York to start, to start a life. But... Um, one can do that. And what's what's very evident in in the book is uh, your your love for that city. Mm-hmm. Um, I I lived in New York as a little kid for a year and a half. It wasn't a really to go from Berkeley to New York City in fourth grade was not a great experience, I have to say. <laughs> but yeah. I went back to I went back to visit once as an adult, and uh, mm-hmm. there was a magic in it. Um, I felt both anonymous and safe in some way because mm-hmm. there were so mm-hmm. many people around. I, I've never felt mm-hmm. so safe walking at night, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a as a woman, um, mm-hmm. so I was I was kind of conjuring that visit reading the book, just your wonder at the city and and all of the people and and experiences. Right. Yeah, it was um, been exactly the right fit for me. Um, I do say in the book that visiting New York is one thing, whereas living here is another. So there was also an adjustment. Um, life in New York, living here in New York is very different from visiting. But I did almost, you know, not almost, I did instantly feel a kind of kinship with the city. And part of it came with the city at night. I had always had trouble sleeping. In fact, my first book, Sleep Demons, is a memoir about insomnia. Um, I'd always had trouble sleeping and being awake at night or being an insomniac can be very lonely. Um, I remember in San Francisco, wherever I lived, if I were awake in the middle of the night, and if I were to take a walk, at least where I lived, there wouldn't really be people outside (laughs) or um, (laughs) much going on on the sidewalks or in the streets. Kind of closes up around here. (laughs) Yeah, whereas in in New York, I got a tiny little apartment in the West Village, and I found right away that um, if I couldn't sleep, I could look out the window and see all this activity down below. There was a restaurant right below my window or people in apartment buildings across the way, or there's the Empire State and the Chrysler buildings and high rises. Or if I chose to, I could take a walk and find in the middle of the night, one, two or three in the morning, all kinds of life. Um, People in parks reading under street lamps, uh, construction workers on the street, uh, restaurant workers going home, skateboarders on 8th Avenue. And um, I loved it. You know, there was a kind of kinship in, in that life at night 
which um, was consoling, I think, and sort of magical. Mm-hmm. I, I felt in the beginning as if I were in a movie in a certain way. And for someone who was as heartbroken as I was and sort of lost after Steve's death, there was just great solace in the, the kinship of strangers in New York and, um, and the comedy of, of strangers and New Yorkers and people on subways and on the streets. So I came to really embrace encounters with strangers, getting stories and taking photographs. And the book then became a kind of um, interweaving of stories about my encounters with New Yorkers, um, a chronicle of my romance and relationship with Oliver Sacks, and then thirdly, a kind of photographic essay about street life in New York. Mm. Let's give people just a little little sense of that. Um, could you share the the section from your opening chapter? Because sure. I think it captures kind of this magic love affair with the city, in a way. Yeah, this is the opening uh, to Insomniac City. I moved to New York eight years ago and felt at once at home, in the haggard buildings and bloodshot skies in trains that never stopped running, like my racing mind at night, I recognized my insomniac self. If New York were a patient, it would be diagnosed with agripnea excitata, a rare genetic condition characterized by insomnia, nervous energy, constant twitching, and dream enactment, an apt description of a city that never sleeps, a place where one comes to reinvent himself. I brought very little with me from San Francisco, my home for 25 years, in part because I wished to leave behind any reminders of the life I'd had there. But also for more practical reasons, my new apartment was a virtual treehouse, a tiny top floor walk up at eye level with the Ilanthus boughs. There wasn't room for more than a desk, a chair, a mattress, nor a need. You see, the place came with spectacular views of Manhattan. What I didn't know when I rented the place was that the French restaurant located straight below my apartment had outdoor seating until 2 a.m. Lying awake in bed, I could literally hear glasses clinking and toast being made six stories down. This was irritating at first. But it wasn't long before I discovered a phenomenon heretofore unknown to me. Laughter rises. Hearing happy, laughing people is no cure for insomnia, but has an ameliorative effect on brokenheartedness. Sometimes I'd sit in the kitchen in the dark and gaze out at the Empire State and Chrysler buildings. Such a beautiful pair, so impeccably dressed, he in his boxy suit, every night a different hue, and she an arm's length away in her filigreed skirt, the color of the moon. I regarded them as an old married couple, calmly, unblinkingly keeping watch over one of their newest sons. And I returned the favor. I would be there the moment the Empire State turned off its lights for the night, as if to get a little shut-eye before sunrise. And that is the opening of Insomniac City. <laughs> you, you were... Uh, I, I get the idea that apartment got you because of what you saw at the window. And it, you really... So Bring bring New York to me when you when you describe that. 
Yeah, I remember the broker taking me in and seeing that view through the boughs of the tree of the Empire State and the Chrysler Building, and just knowing this was where I was meant to live. And um, it was a very magical year, um, discovering the city and also getting to know Oliver. Um, But as you said at the start of our conversation, you, you mentioned how when you read the book, you were conscious of Steve as well. And I think that's really true. Steve doesn't come into the narrative often. But I think when you lose someone that you love so deeply, um, you know, years may pass, but that person remains in your mind and something may trigger episodes of grief or, or remembering that person. And there are moments in the narrative where Steve does, does come back. Absolutely. And then, of course, you know, all that I do ref- reflects that time for me. Uh, mm-hmm. this hour we're spending together is a direct result of uh, my own loss. Uh, and so there's also that, how that person and the loss of them weaves into life and it's kind of can't be taken out. Um, there's, there's a little passage. What's that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, something I yes. don't write about a lot in this book, um, in part because I've written about it in other books and other pieces, I, um, I moved to San Francisco in 1985, and I had come out as gay a year or two before that. So I came out right as the AIDS epidemic exploded in the United Phil, States. Phil, can we come then. back to that after the break? Because I don't want to rush it. Okay, sure. <laughs> let's let's okay. talk about um, that move to San Francisco during during uh, during AIDS when we come back because I think that's really a big part of your story. And listeners, sure. you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, and you can find Bill Hayes at BillHayes.com. Be back soon. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Bill Hayes, whose beautiful memoir, Insomniac City, describes his love affair with New York City, Oliver Sacks, and his own journey through grief, um, path through grief, I guess. And before the break, Bill, we were talking about your move to your other very huge move to San Francisco. Um, 25 years uh, before you moved to New York and you were talking mm-hmm. about um, kind of arriving in the middle of of AIDS. I lived there then, so that's, of course, a big experience in my life too, um, that period mm-hmm. of time. Um, it's, it's kind of fascinating to to think of that because that to me was such a huge grief event, a whole community-wide right. You know, grief event, and also very individual. The the actual the people that people lost, you know, in that right, time. Right. We we still see so many of the consequences of that in San Francisco now. But mm-hmm. you you chose San Francisco. Talk a little bit about that. I did. I'd gone to college in Santa Clara at Santa Clara University near San Francisco, so I kind of got to know the city and. I knew that I was gay. I came out, and San Francisco is the natural place to uh, gravitate toward. Um, and I had friends living there. Moved into a flat in the Castro, and um, yeah, the AIDS epidemic was definitely a central and defining part of my life as an adult. Um, to be really at sort of ground zero, at least on the West Coast, for the epidemic. Um, seeing friends, young men and, and sometimes women, um, getting sick and dying very quickly. And mm-hmm. I became involved with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation where I worked and, uh, and then met Steve who had HIV and I was HIV negative. So we were a mixed status couple. And I bring all of this up mainly to make the point that from a fairly early age, I understood death, illness, and grief to be a part of life. Um, That was one of the lessons of the epidemic. Um, Hard lesson to learn at 25, 26, um, to see peers and friends die so quickly, Um, but also to see this community come together and organize and resist and... um, for activism to have an impact and community organizing to have an impact. Mm. So um, that's another sort of um, background or grace note to Insomniac City. By the time I had lost Steve, you know, I'd experienced loss in my life and knew that life is short. So if I wanted to move to New York City and um, try something different, 
start my life over, reinvent myself as a photographer, um, that now is the time. You know, there's, there's really no time to waste. And I've learned that lesson several times. You know, I've, I've also recently lost a partner, Oliver Sachs, who died just over a year and a half ago. So um, those early lessons of the epidemic, I think, have helped define me as a person and as a writer and as a, an artist. You know, you, the, uh, my favorite um, title of a chapter in your book is On Being yeah. Not Dead. And, yeah. and you say, I suppose it's cliche to say you're glad to be alive that life is short. But to say you're mm-hmm. glad to be not dead requires an intimacy with loss that comes only with age or deep experience. That, mm-hmm. that so captured something for me, you know, when you read something and it puts a feeling into words so eloquently. Yes, it's mm-hmm. different being not dead. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, to- a total difference in my perspective on life. Like, uh, for instance, every birthday... I'm like, yay, I'm older. Whereas right. exactly. <laughs> many of my friends are saying, oh, God, I'm so old. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I, I really resonate with what you're saying there, that, that um, mm-hmm. I was fairly young when my, when my wife died, um, mm-hmm. uh, 40, 42. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it, my whole perspective on, on aliveness and not deadness changed. Right. Yeah, it does. It does have that impact. You know, it's uh, uh, definitely illuminating. The line you quoted about um, on not being dead um, is something that Oliver said on the rooftop of our apartment building on a beautiful night. Actually, a night like this. I, it happens to be a beautiful day in New York right now, as I to you. Very warm. And we were up on the roof and it was just a perfect night in Manhattan. And suddenly Oliver said, I'm glad I'm not dead. (laughs) And it was such an unexpected thing to say, but also so right. Because he was just so happy to be experiencing the beauty of the world and the love that we had and the kindness of our neighbors and the beauty of the city. And he just said, I'm just glad I'm not dead. Um, And I think it's an important distinction to make. Um, And there's no, really no cliche there. Um, and I, yeah, I carry that spirit. You know, I, and I was, I was also thinking a lot or feeling a lot about uh, when I fell in love with my second wife, who I'm married to now, we've been, we just had our 19th anniversary, actually. And mm-hmm. um, we've been together 20 years, which is remarkable. But when I first met her and fell in love with her, I would... I would um, sit awake at night while she was sleeping and look at her and imagine her dead. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it happened a lot for the first year. And so I was thinking about you falling in love with Oliver Sacks, who was, what, 75 at the time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and knowing that in the best of circumstances, um, he was towards the end of his life, I guess. Right, and right. and and going into it with that deep uh, experience of what it means to lose someone, uh, mm-hmm. I I just wondered how that was, you know, falling in love with someone 
older, mm-hmm. it came mm-hmm. up for me, and we were the same. We were a year apart. Uh, right. So what right. was that like for you? Well, I was very open to it. Um, this is something I get asked about quite a bit, and, and maybe it's hard for some people to understand. I was very open to it. Um, the example or comparison I can make is falling in love with Steve, who was actually younger, but he was HIV positive. And at that time, in the late 1980s, that was a very big deal. And that was a very big difference between two people who fall in love. It, it isn't that way anymore because there are medications that can um, control the illness. And there's less um, discrimination and distinction between people because of HIV status. But at the time, it was kind of a big deal. <laughs> and sure. those who were close to me were I'm very well aware. and worried. Um, <laughs> um, because not only because of the possibility of infection, but the possibility that I would lose him. But it was never really a question for me. I just thought, well, I'm in love with him. I fell in love with Steve. It's, I wouldn't um, keep myself from falling in love because he has an illness or a condition. So similarly with Oliver Sacks, yes, he was almost 30 years older than me, um, but I just fell, he was irresistible. He was, he was just irresistible. <laughs> and um, That you know, comes through in the I book, really, I the have other, to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think people do fall in love with him. He was absolutely charming. The other point I really want to make is that having lost Steve so suddenly and unexpectedly, I mean, as suddenly as, you know, someone being hit by a bus in that analogy. Um, you know, I also felt with Oliver that it could be, it could be me. I could go first. You know, you, one never yes. knows. Yes. So while it's true that Oliver was near the end of his life and it would be more likely that he would die first, then he did die first. I also have lived with the philosophy that it could be me. You know, tomorrow I could I could be the one who has a heart attack or gets hit by a car or or gets cancer, you know? Yes. So um, I didn't approach the relationship thinking, oh, my God, he's almost 30 years older and he won't die first and that will be terrible. Um, I just didn't. I just didn't think about that. I was thinking more in the moment and how irresistible he was and fascinating. And what an adventure for, for both of us. It was an adventure for him as well. Well, that that's very obvious in the book, too. I mean, he you're the first person he ever was in love with. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and I mean, he'd had... He'd had some love as a very young man and gotten a very broken heart, which sort of closed that door for him up, you know, until he met me. But he had never been in a romantic or domestic relationship ever. So um, that was a whole new experience for Oliver, beginning beginning at age 75. And um, it was really delightful and lovely to see someone of that age and that stature and that experience and that accomplishment enter into something so new. Um, my book, Insomniac City, is very much about my own reinvention in my late 40s and 50s, but in a certain way, it's also about Oliver's reinventing himself as um, in a relationship. And uh, he also 
dove in head first, um, but wearing swimming goggles, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I'm a therapist, so of course I've read his books, you know, in the past, mm-hmm. and uh, he... He always struck me as someone who had such a fresh view of living. Yeah. Um, he, he, you just couldn't conform him and into anybody else's view. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he had his uh, own angle his, on life. At his, <laughs> at, his, at his memorial, someone described him as a very unusual person. <laughs> as simple <laughs> as that sounds, that is a very accurate description. He was really unlike anyone I've ever known. Um, just intensely curious and also very brilliant and with a kind of cheerful temperament that was, that was part of the irresistible quality. He, um, I happen to be more of a melancholy sort, I think, whereas he was definitely a, more of a cheerful soul. He, he definitely enjoyed life. Very, very uh, evident and also very, some of the ways he described things mm-hmm. just, so uh, gave me a fresh, fresh, you know, view of them. Um, mm-hmm. Like how he described love as a as a question of mutuality, or yeah. uh, the way you'd ask if you could do anything more for him, and he said, "Exist." I mean, there's just such a freshness in his yeah. way yeah, of describing things, was, and uh, <laughs> he he was quite amazing. Um. I also was interested, at some point, uh, you said uh, something that is familiar to me. You know, people, my my wife was sick for 10 years before she died, and, and people will say, oh, God, how terrible to live with that for so long, and that is not my view of it at all. I uh-huh. have much harder time with sudden loss, and so I was interested in a, in a little thing you said in the book that you preferred having the time um, mm-hmm. that that's that that knowing that that was coming was a good thing for you given the suddenness of Steve's it was, death it was I mean I've experienced I've experienced lots of different losses in my life I mean I've lost my mother I've lost friends but the loss of these two partners Steve and then Oliver have been the most central to my experience and very different kinds of losses. Steve's was sudden and yeah, there was no goodbye. Whereas with Oliver, he got a terminal diagnosis or prognosis in January, 2015. Um, and they were pretty clear how little or how much time he would have. And they were, as it turns out, pretty accurate. Hmm. That's unusual but these I days. Was, <laughs> I was, um, I was relieved at least that we had some time. I mean, I I remember telling him the first weekend, you know, at least we've had, (laughs) at least we've had this much. If it were only two or three days, that's more than I had before. And for us to say whatever we needed to say to one another or just appreciate one another. And Mm -hmm. um, I mean, of course I wish it could have been longer. And there was a little while there where we thought, he might have longer. It seemed like things were going pretty well, but then as happens with cancer and many illnesses, you know, it can be unpredictable and things suddenly changed. And then he, his decline was very rapid. Um, but, um, 
I do feel at least we had that time. And he was incredible in his generosity and graciousness, I think, in writing about the experience in the what are really now famous essays he wrote for the New York Times about facing illness and his own death. And, uh, yes, of wrote, course, of course, I saw those right away when he yeah, when he sure started he writing, and, and they just um, th- there was such a depth to his to his mm-hmm. thoughts about and feelings about um, that inevitable time in his life. Very, very yeah. moving to many, many and people, such, and such clarity. I think that's that's the key ingredient um, with Oliver. Such clarity about his condition and what he was facing and, um, and um, what was to come. But in the time he had, he wanted to live his life as richly and productively as he could. And he really did. I mean, off the page, just the two of us are in his circle of friends. He lived a really rich, productive life in those last six months. And, and I imagine that is, I feel I was helped in grief very much by the full-on living that happened before death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have a sense of anything sort of left undone or, right. darn, I wish I had said this or done that. or You know, I didn't yeah. have any of that, which plagues people so much. And so I was, true. I was, um, true. you know, imagining that that might be true for you a bit, that, uh, it, it, it was true, um, and I do feel grateful for that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think because we're having this conversation, I also want to acknowledge, especially for all those people out there listening, um, the difference when a death is unexpected and sudden, like like Steve's death. I mean, it's it's a different it's a different kind of grief, I think, and um, and it can bring guilt and loneliness and regret that one has to you know, pay attention to. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, let's talk more if, about that. Saying it's not as uh, if one is quote unquote better than the other. It's just, it's as if they are different experiences and they are experiences that we have as human beings. And it's a very tough part of life. <laughs> and, um, but they both present different opportunities. I mean, what happened can I can I interrupt you, Bill? Because we're going to need yeah, to sure. take a break, sure. and then let's talk about that more uh, on our return. Okay. Um, listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, or to find Bill Hayes, you can go to billhayes.com, and we'll be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Bill Hayes, the author of Insomniac City. And before the break, Bill, we were... Um, talking, you were talking about um, the differences, you started talking about the differences between sudden and uh, a more expected loss. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. y- you know, I'm, I'm so glad we're talking about it because I find them quite different having had both. And, mm-hmm. of course, it's somewhat hard to compare just because each grief is so different. But what would you say for you having, uh, you know, lost a partner suddenly and after some time, how would you talk about the differences there? Well, um, let's see. It's true that with Oliver's, with his prognosis, it did give us time to say things, do things, get things resolved and settled um, that did make his death and in some ways has made the grief easier. But um, but then it's also true that when it all comes down to it, <laughs> whether losing Steve suddenly or losing Oliver with a sense of anticipation, um, when you are left alone and missing that person you love so much, it, it almost feels like there's no difference. You know, the, the loneliness of suddenly being by yourself and having to create a new life. Mm. And, um, you know, my book, Insomniac City, is bookended by these two losses. It really opens with the loss of Steve and it closes with uh, Oliver's death. And yet I don't think of it as a book about grief. It's really a book about life. And about yes. um, starting a new life and, and understanding that grief and death and illness are part of life. And we, um, it's something we have to face and, um, and deal with. And uh, we were chatting at the break. A, a little story that I tell in this book takes place in my first apartment in the West Village and how I, over the course of a year, very closely observed the trees outside my window and came to um, sort of learn from those trees, something about Mm -hmm. dealing with grief or um, very difficult things in one's life. So I thought I might read a little bit from this passage in Insomniac City. I'd love that. Thank you. Sure. I learned a good deal about moving through grief 
from some trees I once knew. They were not my trees. I didn't plant them. They stood right outside the window in my first New York apartment. The only tending done was to give them my full attention over the course of four seasons. When I moved in, it was April, still cold, and the branches were bare. Facing northeast, my view of Manhattan was unobstructed, seen through a latticework veil. There were five trees, each distinct. They were not beautiful. <laughs> my next-door neighbor, a landscape designer, told me that the species is an, is an urban weed. But I never expected beauty. That they were tall and strong and present was enough. I found that Ilanthus, the name of the tree, derives from an in Indonesian word meaning tree of heaven. I didn't cover the windows with shades or curtains. I'd wake with the sun and lie in bed and, and watch the tree limbs for a minute. Some mornings the branches looked as if they were floating on wind drafts, wind drafts as light as leaves. With a stormy sky, they turned black and spindly, like shot nerve endings. Two years had passed since Steve's death, and though I had largely adjusted to his absence, I still experienced intense pangs of grief, painful unpleasure, in Freud's exquisite phrase. At times, I'd be tempted to take out old photos, photos of Steve, just to look, just one picture, just for a minute, like a junkie on the verge of relapsing, but I resisted. I had seen the trees stand up to strong winds and hold their own against the elements. The summer was a rainy one, perfect for watching tree TV, as I came to call it. Once, during a ferocious thunderstorm I'd just managed to escape, I found the boughs being tossed about like ragdolls. The branches thrashed violently, whipping back and forth, slamming against the windows with a thud, then sliding down slowly before being lifted aloft again. I was riveted. The trees, clearly overmatched by the combination of winds, rain, and lightning, were not fighting the storm, but yielding to it. This is just how they were built, how the species had evolved to survive. Hmm. So I, I, you know, that is the lesson I took from those trees, about sometimes you have to... You can't resist it. You know, you have to yield to it. And sometimes that means yielding to the grief and the sadness um, and sinking into it a bit, but also knowing that you are going to survive. You know, you are going to make it. And that is certainly something I learned from the loss of Steve that has helped me in recovering from the loss of Oliver. Yes. You know, I knew even as we faced Oliver's death that whatever happened, I was going to, you know, I was going to survive. It was, it was not going to be fun <laughs> or easy, um, but yeah. I had made it past Steve's death and started a really rich new life in New York City that I had not expected to have. And um, my life post Oliver would definitely be different and would be missing something. It would not be the same, but um, I was going to survive it. Two things uh, come to me that are that are mm -hmm. very personal. First of all, at the bottom of my website, there's a quote from Shelley from Ode to the West yeah. Wind. If winter comes, can spring be far behind? That's mm -hmm. that's just so deeply in the way that that I come at my griefs, you know. Mm -hmm. And and it's what you're talking about, kind of 
it's no different what you have to do in grief, what you have to experience, but your perspective on doing it is different. Mine is different. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that um, just made me smile is that this last year at 63, I got mm-hmm. my first tattoo. Oh, and right. <laughs> something I never thought I would do. Probably I wouldn't have if my mother was still living. But um, <laughs> anyway, it's a four-season tree. Oh, that's uh, great. It, it covers yeah. the bottom of my leg pretty thoroughly. And so that idea that we're, we're – um, that all the seasons have to be a part of a year. When I read uh-huh. that uh, chapter in your book – of course, I was really, I was really with you because yeah. that's that's the that's the sum total of it. That there, it's all a part of it. It's all about yeah. life, actually. Yep, it it really is, and and great beauty can come out of it, even out of that sadness. And but you have to be open to it. You know, one piece of advice that someone gave me, which I'll never forget. Um, he said, you know, when you lose someone you love that much, your life changes. And then he paused and he said, let it, let it change. <laughs> you know, yes. don't, don't fight it. You know, it's, it, you can't have the life back that you had. Um, your life will change and some of it will be really good. And some of it will be really interesting and new and be open to that. And some of it will be really hard, you know, cause it's hard but you will, you will make it. So let your life change. That's, that's the best piece of advice I ever got. Uh, and it guides yes, that is good that, advice. You know, I'm, Sometimes advice is of, so unhelpful, but that's, that's good advice, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's also just, um, you, you said sometimes it will be really hard and sometimes it will be vu- beautiful, I would also mm-hmm. say sometimes the really hard is beautiful. Uh, true. true. You know, there's there's some way that um, the year after my my wife died um, was exquisitely hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess mm-hmm. is that that there were moments of such depth and feeling and and aliveness, and I did things I don't usually do, like I sang every day and I. Put my right. hands in dirt every day. Just things that were very, very alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I gave myself what I needed, you know? <laughs> what a concept. Right. I, I think that's so <laughs> important. I mean, I have sort of prescriptions for myself when I feel that wave of grief come over me. And I do let myself cry. I have a line in the book where I say, a good cry is like a car wash for the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, sometimes you have to let yourself sink into that sadness and experience that depth of emotion. But what I've personally learned is it's also good to sort of set some limits on yourself. So you have your good cry, but then make sure you do something to make yourself feel really good and just change your environment. Take a shower, take a bath, make sure you have something to eat, drink a glass of water, take a walk, reconnect with your neighbors or friends. And um, so, yeah, take care of yourself as well. I, I recently interviewed Nancy Salzman, who lost her whole family in a plane crash. And her mm-hmm. little recipe was um, she had to find three things that brought her joy every day, mm-hmm. even even mm-hmm. though she was in the depths of despair. 
you know, yeah. maybe it would be she walked the dog and the dog did something funny or, you know, she mm-hmm, just made a mm-hmm. practice to notice what wasn't devastating, um, which I yeah. found very interesting. It's kind of what we're talking I, about, too. It is. You know, I really believe that one has to create opportunities for joy and you can't just sort of wait for joy to come into your life or for happiness <laughs> to come in, even though it may unexpectedly, but you also have to actively create opportunities for joy, whether that means something as simple as taking a walk or going for a run, doing something that makes you feel good, or saying yes to that invitation that comes out of the blue. And you may have second thoughts. You think, you know, I should just, yeah, I should just, I have to, I have to create opportunities for happiness too. And perhaps, I don't know if you'd agree, but I know for me, um, the joy post-grief is more abandoned for me than pre-grief. I'm just more open to all of my feelings than I was Mm -hmm. um, before that period of illness and then then loss. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that's really the spirit of my book. You know, a lot of the book, as you know, deals with my relationship with New York City, where it's having chance encounters with people on the streets of New York or in the subway or in a taxi and being open to others' experiences and stories. And, uh, and for me, that sometimes means taking their photograph as well. Yes, the, the other people in your book, and we haven't talked much about that, are so vivid. And I was mm-hmm. very aware of of how uh, you didn't hesitate to talk to a stranger or or talk to the homeless person, and that's kind of mm-hmm. connected to what we're we're talking about being alive to the opportunities that are in front of us. Yes, that's exactly right. Exactly, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's how I live my life. And more so since I've gone through these different experiences, just being open to other people. And my openness sort of brings that out in others, I think, too. It's a paradox, isn't it? Our lives are more wonderful. My life is more wonderful in certain ways, despite, you know, what's painful. And it mm-hmm. sounds as if we have that in common. I hope people go read the book. It's really, really beautiful. And I want to thank you for being with me today. Well, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. I agree. I hope we'll stay in touch. Yeah. Listeners, next week, I'll have Brian Young, whose book, Meant for Heaven, captures the importance of his faith in facing the unimaginable death of his three-year-old child, Holland. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.